this Thanksgiving. My family goes to Wichita to spend time with my in-laws. And I always think that it's going to be a time of relaxing and lounging. And I don't know why I think that. We've been married for nine years and we've yet to have a year like that. And I get to the house, again, thinking, just be some good quality couch time, watching football, small talk with the guys, and a little small talk with the ladies. That sounded incredibly weird. (laughs) What happens is, when I get there, I'm immediately mauled by four kids under this tall, and there are about 11 or 12 grandkids running around, and, and... It's not chaotic. It is chaotic. It's not at all calm. And knowing what I was going to be speaking on this Sunday, I think carrying that with me this week, I had it in my mind. I realized something, and and I'm thankful that I knew uh, that I had an idea of what I was going to share with you this morning before next week when we launch into our Christmas series, Dear Lord, Baby Jesus. I realized that each one of those events had a time slot on it. That it wasn't just hanging out, relaxing. There's a certain time that you need to get ready. There's a certain time that family, more family and friends are going to start arriving. There's a certain time that you're supposed to eat. There's a certain time for the family festivities after the meal. There's a certain time when you got to be in the car, loaded up, ready to travel. And I I was just kind of thinking... And, and it really rolls over into this morning, is that really if you think about it, every part of our life is really dictated by the clock. I mean, every, every part of our life, has we have some type of a relationship with the schedule and with the clock. And then I really started to think about this. That as my, and, and I'm not su- suggesting that that's a bad thing. It helps keep us organized. It, it helps keep us motivated oftentimes. And it help, helps keep us on track and helps keep us accountable. But one of the things that I thought about, especially in relationship to this morning's message, as I'm sure you're already opening up to Romans chapter 13, is at least in my life, it seems like every area of my life is somehow related to time and urgency of time. I've got to get somewhere at a certain time. I've got to be ready at a certain time. I've got to have this turned in at a certain time. And I started thinking, so many parts of my life, if not every part of my life, is so dependent on the urgency of time except one. And it seems like the one area of my life that is not so dependent on the urgency of time is my Christianity. Now what I mean by that is this. I knew what time I needed to be at the church. I knew what time I was expected to be there. I knew what was expected of me this morning. I knew what time I needed to have everything ready. Jason knew what time he needed to have everything ready for the worship service. We understood what the expectation was. So we we challenged and we rose to that challenge to meet those expectations. I knew what was expected of me this week and this weekend with the family. I knew what time I needed to be ready. And what surprises me so much is that in my Christianity, 
in my walk with Christ, even though I might have dictates of time in every other area, sometimes I fail to for, I forget that my walk with Christ also ought to have at the end of, in my mind is that reminder that there is coming a day. I don't know when it is. I know there is coming a day when I'm going to see Christ. And I know that there's coming a day where he is going to return. And in light of that, in light of that biblical truth that I am going to someday meet Christ, someday I'm going to stand before him, someday he's going to return, someday he's going to rapture the church, though I don't know when it is, I should live my life under the dictates of that truth. If I really believe that I'm going to meet God someday, if I really believe that he is going to return, then that ought to change my current conduct. The, the understanding and the grasping of that truth, or better yet, being grasped by that truth, that, that understanding of a future truth ought to change my current conduct. And the, the apostle is writing to the Romans. We believe that, that, that they, were, they were Christians. And as he's writing to these Roman Christians, he's sharing something with them in chapter 13, verse 11. And I wanted to spend this morning talking a, a bit about what he's telling them. He's telling them to wake up. And I, can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if you were going to have... How many of you had family and friends coming to your house? How many of you were hosting a Thanksgiving event? All right, all the rest of us were at your houses. Okay, so... You had, you had all of these people that were coming. What would have happened had you rolled over and looked at the clock and rubbed your eyes and it was 12.30 in the afternoon? Doorbells are ringing. And you go down in your flip-flops and your jammies and you, and you open the door and there's the family and you don't have the food ready. It would be embarrassing because you weren't ready. And I believe that the apostle is writing to the Roman Christians saying, wake up, you're asleep. You've overslept. You've got something to wake up for. And I want you to join with me as we open up to Romans chapter 13. And I want to, to share with you what he says in verse 11. He says, and do this. Doing this is all that he spoke of previously. Submission to government, loving your enemies, loving others. But he says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We talk about often in, in, in the New Testament about death. And we know that Jesus came to give us life and to give us life eternal. And, and the New Testament is especially filled with that promise of life. And if Christ came to give us life, then what we understand from that is that without Christ, we are dead. Even though we may be physically alive, the Bible still tells us that apart from Christ, 
we are spiritually dead. And the apostle is writing in a little bit of a different term. Remember, he's writing to Christian believers. He's writing to those who've been born again. So he would not dare tell them to come alive because they have already been born again through Christ. They have already received the free gift of salvation. The light that we spoke of has now been shed abroad in their hearts. They are alive. So in order to spur them on, he's not telling them to come alive for they already possess life. What he's telling them to do is to wake up. A few weeks ago, I was studying. And I was sitting at my desk and, and, and I had just put, put my book down and picked up my phone and was talking to a friend of mine. And all of a sudden, the, the, the ground was shaken. Do you remember that? The ground started shaking, and, and then it was just a weird, eerie feeling. At first, I thought someone ran into our house, and then I thought Hyatt was running down the hall, and I couldn't quite figure out exactly what was causing the ground to shake. And, and, and I was just five, and I, honestly, you can tell her I said this. If it would have gone on for five more seconds, I would have thrown myself on top of Bree to save her life. It didn't get to that point. It, didn't get, it stopped just soon enough. But go ahead and tell her that I said that, okay? When it started, I looked at Bree, I walked into the living room, and I looked at her, and she said, that's an earthquake. So, I, I mean, I felt huge. Here, I survived my first earthquake. I felt like a champion. So I come into work the next day, and I'm, I'm talking to everybody. I said, hey, guys, I'm a survivor. I survived this earthquake. My family, we survived this earthquake. And there were people that didn't know that there was an earthquake. There were people that didn't expect, it kind of minimized my accomplishment, I have to admit, but still there were people who didn't, you know why they didn't know there was an earthquake? It happened at 11 o'clock at night. They were sleeping, and their bed obviously absorbed a lot of the shaking from the ground. So they, they slept right through the earthquake. And when I think about this word that the apostle is using, he's speaking a perfect word to a perfect group of people. He's not telling them, come alive, for they already have that life. He's telling them to wake up. Now, some of you may be able to relate to what I'm about to say maybe better than others. Think about the perfection. Think about how absolutely perfect that word is that the apostle is using to describe these believers where they are and the urgency that is needed for the day that is coming. He says, wake up. Wives, I'm going to go ahead and give you an opportunity to rat your husband out. This is just all of a sudden turned into the newlywed game, by the way. Ladies, how many of your wives could sleep through an earthquake? A big one. What did I say? Please tell me, Lord, that I didn't say wives. How many of your wives? <laughs> did I really? Cut, cut that out of the recording, please. Wives, how many? That's why nobody raised their hand. They're like, this is a trick question, isn't it? I'm not falling for this one. Wives, how many of your husbands could sleep through an earthquake? How many of your husbands could sleep through a mudslide? How many of your husbands, when they go to sleep, they are out? They don't know anything is going on unless they hear this word, which wakes up husbands everywhere. Wives, I'm ratting out your husband. This word, when spoken, will cause your husband to sit up in the middle of wherever they're at, whatever, however deep of sleep they are, however deep of a REM sleep they're in. If you go over to him and you say, touchdown, 
They are up. It is crazy how that word going in our ear, just all of a sudden, it just starts coursing through our veins and we're up and we're alert like never before. Go ahead and use that. Uh, husbands, you don't want to know how to get your wives away? Sail. You say sail, especially if it's a one-day sail. They are up. At any rate, when you're asleep, when you're asleep for the most part, you're unresponsive. All you're thinking about is your eyelids. You don't know what's going on around you. Now, I understand that there are varying degrees of sleep and varying degrees of depth of sleep, but for the most part, painting with a very broad brush, every one of us that sleeps is unresponsive to what's going on around us. So the apostle is writing to these believers, and he's telling them to wake up, and we get that idea that they are not resting, but they're lazy, and they have now fallen asleep, and they're unresponsive to all that's going on around them. They are incredibly vulnerable. Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 told a parable of some foolish virgins. You ought to read that in cross-reference to our message this morning about the dangers of sleep and how being unresponsive can make us unprepared for what we need to be prepared for. It's not just, it doesn't just make us unresponsive, but if you think about it, we almost appear dead. We look dead. I saw a picture of you, Jason, when you were on the 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 van the the bus coming back from Falls Creek and he looked dead looked dead not only are we unresponsive but we're unaware we don't we're not aware of what's going on around us by the way we're not responsive because we don't know what's going on around us and i can't help but think this that the word that the apostle used to jar those Roman believers, I can't help but think that it is still effective for us today. A spiritual sleep. We're, we're alive. We still, our heart's still beating. Our lungs are still breathing. We still have blood going through our body. We are spiritually alive, and yet we are spiritually asleep, unaware and unresponsive of all that is going on around us. Another thing that sleep does it renders us unproductive. You don't do anything when you sleep. When, you, when you're asleep, all you're doing is taking care of yourself. Sleep is not benefiting anybody else unless you are the parent of a toddler. But for everybody else, sleep does nothing to benefit other people. Are we starting to see this picture of what the Apostle is speaking of? He's saying, in essence, if I understand this word right, He's saying, wake up. You are spiritually unaware of the time that you are living in. You are spiritually unaware of all that is going on. You are spiritually unresponsive to the events that are taking place around you. You're unaware of the needs of other people. You're unaware of ministry opportunities. You're unaware of the mission of God in the world. And you're not participating in that. Some of you may know spiritually sleeping people. And I can't help but think that spiritually, spiritually sleepy people share something with physically sleepy people. And that's that they're incredibly grumpy. Guys, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, 
warned of the dangers of sleeping. No, not sleeping to rest our body because we've been working hard and laboring for the Lord, but the type of rest that accompanies laziness and a spiritual lethargic attitude. And what Jesus or what the apostle is saying here to those believers is wake up. Be aware of what's going on. Get engaged. Get in the ball game. Don't just fall asleep in the spiritual recliner tucked over in the corner unaware of all that's going on, but wake up and be a part of it. And he tells us why. He gives us the great reason. He tells us why he's grabbing the shoulders of the Roman believers and shaking them. He tells them why he's going over and shouting in their ear to wake up. He says, for our salvation is nearer than when we believed. For our salvation is nearer than when we believed. You said, wait a second, pastor, I thought you told me that the Roman believers were already saved. Then what is he talking about? Their salvation being nearer than when we first believed. He's not speaking about the salvation of their soul. He's speaking about that day at the imminent return of Christ when they will be saved, rescued, redeemed in full from this world, from this body, from all things corrupt, Evil and falling apart. What he's saying is wake up. Your master is coming at any moment. Let me remind you that the imminent return of Christ is both imminent and unknown. Imminent meaning it can happen at any moment. Unknown in that nobody knows the day or the hour of their return. God knows his creation well. There are many that speculate that they know the day or the time or the hour of such events. But let me tell you, knowing our human nature like we do, what do you think would happen if God would have revealed the day and the moment of His return? We would have lived awful, moral, immoral, corrupt lives up until the very last moment. The imminent return of Christ is not to trick or to catch any off guard. We're to be on guard the entire time. It's because God knows our nature. The apostle tells them to wake up. Maybe spiritually, God down in our heart has, is shaking us, is jarring us with the words of God, uh, with Romans chapter 13 to say, you know what? You are spiritually unaware of what's going on. All you're focused on is yourself, just like in sleep. You're not thinking about the needs of others. You're not thinking about the global mission of Christ. You're not thinking about serving His name for His glory through the local church. You are just wrapped up in yourself. You're unaware. You're unresponsive to what's going on. You're grumpy. Maybe that's what God is saying to you. And maybe in your heart you realize this morning, I'm not dead. I'm spiritually sleeping. This is not a rest. This is a spiritual laziness that he's speaking of. Well, after we wake up, I would like to say that the next first thing we do is clean up. But everybody knows that for many, the next thing you do is get the coffee, right? So since there is no picture of a spiritual coffee in this text, I'm going to have to skip over to the next one. The second thing, after we get up, we get cleaned up. Notice what he says in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day. 
not in revelry or carousing and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The apostle is warning about several different acts of sin, specifically. He's already told them to love others, to love their enemies, to to submit to authority. He's already warned them of that, but now he's saying specifically, as though he has this little knife, and now he's he's drawing out and, and, and exacting out these perfect coordinates as he's removing these things from their life and, and highlighting them. He's saying, don't let sexual immorality rule in your life. Just as he's using this picture of light and darkness, dark night and day, He's talking about these events that we would commonly associate with the darkness. He's saying don't get caught up in any type of sexual immorality outside of the bounds of marriage. Whether it's pornography or whether it is an illicit affair or whether it's lust in general that you've harbored in your heart but is yet to exercise itself in your flesh. What he is saying is those are deeds of evil. Those are the works of night. Do not let those be a part of your life. He's telling those believers, wake up and clean up. Guys, I have to believe that if he's saying wake up and clean up, then I have to believe that being spiritually sleeping also puts one in an environment where it is very easy to conduct these types of sins. Spiritually sleeping yields to morally corrupt lives. Because we're unaware, we're unresponsive to God and to His Word, we continue plowing through these things, callousing our heart, hardening our heart, and we're unproductive. Wake up and clean up. By the way, He doesn't just deal with sexual sins, He deals with drunkenness, Again, something that we often attribute to the night. But then there's something that knows no night or day. It's something that we deal with all the time. Strife and envy. We think of, we think of those previous things as great sins. But yet sometimes we think of strife and envy as lesser sins. And yet the Apostle puts them all on the same line. He says, wake up. And after you've woke up, Clean up. Take a spiritual shower. Confess. Repent of those sins that are a part of your life. Now he's speaking to the Romans. He's speaking to those who worshipped and were very familiar with the gods of the day, both the Romans and the Greeks. There was a Greek god of wine uh, that was commonly worshipped at that time and in that area. They would start out with a little parade in the middle of their city. They would drink all through the parade, all through the night, and then it would end with all types of sexual immorality at the end of the parade. So no doubt that was on the apostle's mind as he's writing to these believers. Though we do not worship the god of wine as some of the others have, it is still something that needs to be concerned, that we need to be concerned of in our life, that we would not allow lust and sexual immorality and, and, and an absolute drunkenness, living without sobriety of life, and that you and I would be content with what we have and not seek to fight with others for the sake of our own personal advancement. He doesn't just say to wake up and clean up. 
But after you get out of the shower, the third thing you do is you always get dressed. So now the Apostle in verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Notice verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. He's telling them to change clothes. Get out of your old sleep clothes. Get out of those, those things and put on Christ. Put on the armor of light. In John chapter 11, we have truly a remarkable miracle. It's one that leaves us amazed and it left, no doubt, the people uh, of the day amazed at what Jesus had done. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, had known that he had gotten sick. So Mary and Martha had sent for Jesus to come and to heal their brother. Jesus waited for a while, several days, and then he leaves to go be with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And when they see that Jesus is coming, they run out to tell him that Lazarus is dead. And in John chapter 11, there's a lot of events that are going on, but Jesus ultimately goes to where the tomb of Lazarus is. And when he comes to the tomb, there are people that are crying, there are, there are sisters that are just that are torn up over the loss of their son or their brother, and Jesus says these words. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible tells us this awesome miracle is that when the stone had been rolled away, here comes Lazarus, the man who had been dead and placed in the tomb for four days, whom the sisters did not even want the stone rolled away because they were afraid of the stink. And here comes Lazarus, he who had been dead for four days, comes walking out of the tomb. Nothing more. Jesus never touched him. Jesus never did anything but speak his name and tell him what to do. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. As Billy Graham said, it's a good thing that Jesus said Lazarus or every dead person in that grave would have come forward. When Lazarus came forward, there's an interesting description of him in the Bible. It says that he was bound hand and foot and had the grave clothes over his face. So if you can imagine as tightly as they would wrap them, most generally, he probably would have been what we understood to be hopping out of the tomb. Wouldn't that have been a, an interesting sight? Not just this dead man rise, being raised from the dead, but to see him literally wrapped up in his grave clothes and coming out. Now, why am I talking about John 11? Why would I be talking about John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus when we're in Romans 13? It's because of this. If you were to look at Lazarus that day, that moment, that little span of time, if you would have looked at Lazarus, he would have looked like a dead man. He was covered hand, foot, and face. He would have looked dead, but acted alive. 
You see, on the inside of him, there was life, there was blood, there was breath, there were skin. There were, he was back to normal. He was alive. Life was once again coursing through his body, but from the outside, from everybody's appearance, even though he was moving, he still looked like a dead man. And I can't help but think that there are moments in our life that we might be able to closely relate to that story of Lazarus. That on the inside, we're alive. The Romans were alive. They were born again. And maybe you also are born again. But on the outside, from everybody else's appearance, you look dead. Because much like Lazarus, you're wrapped up in all of the grave clothes and the corruption of death and sin. And they can't see past your actions. They can't see past our appearance to be able to see the real life coming out of us i think that happens to us spiritually we're alive but we wrap ourselves up in habits and addictions and and sin that so easily covers up the life you might remember jesus immediately had people around him to help get him out of the grave clothes Man can't get himself out of those things. They're not intended to be able to get out of them. He had friends, a group, come around and help him get out. And the next time we see Lazarus, he's sitting at a table, eating a meal with Jesus. Fellowshipping. He who was once in a tomb, dead, now had life. Now looked alive, was alive, freed from the bondage of, of death, and now was eating with Jesus Christ in our life. I don't know what you look like spiritually. I don't know what takes place inside of you. But I know that it is not difficult for us to be engaged in the works of darkness. And by all accounts on the outside, through our speech, through our conduct, through the things we do or the things that we don't do that we should, that we begin to appear more like dead people than the people that Christ has called us to be living and victorious. He said, wake up, clean up, get dressed, and the fourth and final thing, get going. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not some type of a hypocritical cleaning of the outside of the cup that he's speaking about. He's not talking about cleaning up the outside while the inside is full of rottenness and spiritual corruption. When he's talking about putting on Jesus Christ, we have taken off the works of darkness. We have taken off that sin. We have taken off that sexual immorality. We've taken off envy and strife and fighting. We have taken those things off. We have confessed them and repented of them. And now we are saying, Jesus, I want to be like you. 
This is not just a dressing that goes over the outside. This is an actual visible display of what was always on the inside of the believer in the first place. This is living a life of commitment to Christ. Not allowing our flesh to dictate our direction, but allowing Christ to dictate our direction. Wake up, he says. Clean up. Get dressed and get going. I can't help but mention one thing. Look at verse 12 with me for just one moment. He says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light and let us walk properly. Talking about our day-to-day, everyday living, walking. So in verse 13, he's telling them, once all these things are taking place, then get out there and, be, and participate in the work and in the life that Christ has called us to live. But he doesn't just tell us to walk. In verse 12, he tells us to put on the armor of light. Why? Why would someone put on armor? There's a threat, someone said. Yeah. Do you wear armor at home? I hope not. I hope there's not that significant of a threat that you would need to wear armor. You wear armor in this time when you're going into war. And I believe what the Apostle is telling those believers is to wake up spiritually, clean up spiritually, get dressed, take off the old clothes, put on the new ones in Christ, and get going. Get going where? Get back to the battle at hand. Continue as a soldier of light. The glory of God. Light and glory go hand in hand in the New Testament. Especially at the time of Christmas. The light of God and the glory of God go together. What he's saying is get up. Get cleaned up. Get dressed. Get out there. And be a part of the work of God for His glory. Do battle. The Bible speaks so often in the New testament about us being soldiers of christ about us having all of the armor of god about us being called into this service by christ he is telling us to get out there and to get active in accomplishing the work of god throughout all of the world be victorious soldiers he's not calling us to be spiritual couch potatoes He's calling us to be spiritual men and women of integrity that reflect the glory of God and that do the work of Christ. If I'm a spiritual couch potato, I'm not that person. Now, why do we do all of this? What is the grand reason to wake up, to clean up, to get dressed, and to get going? What what am I going for? He says, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Why get up? Why care about what I'm wearing? Why care about the filth that I'm living in? Why be active in something that is 
Why be active in spiritual warfare? He says, because your king is coming. Isn't it funny? That he says nothing, nothing about his worthiness. Just nothing. Nothing about the worthiness of the king that we are to be living for down here. All he speaks of is that he is coming. And that we will see him. The awesome thing is that he didn't speak of the worthiness of the king because among the Roman believers at that time, it would have been understood. The king's coming? You mean today I might meet him? You mean today I might meet the king? Then I need to get up and get around and get dressed. Why? Because the moment at hand is so important. Because the person I'm going to see is by far greater than any other person in the world. I've got a date with God. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a week, a month, a year, a decade. I don't know. But he could come at any moment. And God help us to live our lives today in light of that truth. If I tried this morning to speak about the worthiness of God, I would exhaust all of my time. Many of you know the worthiness of God. And if we know the worthiness of God, let us live in light of His worthiness. I want to be found in Him, not ashamed. I want to be found in Him. I want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to live this life not to honor myself, but to honor the One who saved me, who has called me, who has equipped me, and who loves me. That's loyalty. Not doing it for any other reason than because of who He is. I want to ask you two questions. One is, are you spirit? Do you know where you are right now? Because there are really only three options that we have. We are spiritually dead. We're lost. That means we've yet to come to faith in Christ. Separated from Him because of our sin, which has rendered us dead. And the only way we can be alive is through being redeemed, purchased by Him through His sacrifice for us on the cross. The moment I say, Lord Jesus, I need You as my Savior. I have sinned, and I need Your forgiveness for all of my sins. And today, I make You my Lord and my Savior. I turn my life over to You, God, the moment we come to Him as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. That moment that that happens, we immediately become children of God. We become children of light. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're spiritually dead. Maybe this morning, just now, you prayed those words. Maybe those words rang true in your heart this morning. And right now, you said, you know what? I've just trusted Christ as my Savior. I promise you, you are as spiritually alive as any other believer. The Bible says it will never be a shame those who pray that prayer. 
Maybe you are spiritually alive in that you have Christ, but you're spiritually sleeping. You're unaware of what's going on. You're unprepared. You're unresponsive. And maybe today in a way that only Christ can, He's reached down into the middle, into the darkened, hidden corridors of your heart. And maybe He got a hold of you in a place that He hasn't gotten a hold of you in a while. Maybe you were in a very deep spiritual sleep and Christ, as He's been known to do for thousands of years, through the teaching of His Word, uses His Holy Spirit to jar us. To put His hand on our shoulder and to shake us. And to say, wake up. I'm coming to get you. Wake up. I've got work for you to do. Wake up. I love you and I want you to honor and glorify Me. If that's the case today, Are you willing to confess and forsake those sins? Are you willing to leave those old, corrupt pajamas aside and say, Lord, I dedicate myself today to walking with You. Today I'm taking these off and I'm putting these on. Maybe you are spiritually active today. Maybe you are alive and you are working and laboring. And I want to tell you, praise God for those of you that are aware, that are responsive, that are productive in the work of the kingdom of God because you were being an awesome example to those around you of what it is to be a person waiting for the return of their king. We're going to have a response time. And maybe God, I believe God, we've prayed for God to do a work in our hearts. A work of repentance. A work of salvation. A work of decision that He's called you to. And maybe you know exactly what it is. And maybe God has called you to make it public. Maybe you come up and you say, you know what? Today is the day that I am putting on Christ. Maybe today you say, God has put on my heart to join this church and to be a part, an active part of what He's doing in this community and the world. Maybe you say, I've never been baptized and God has placed that on your heart. Or any of the other myriad things that God could be communicating to you right now. Will we respond to them? If He's woken you up for this, don't stop short of participating in His work. Father, I thank You that You still give life. I thank You that You still wake us up from our spiritual slumber. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for our spiritual sleeping that we often fall into and that we do drift off to sleep at occasion. And Father, I thank You that You have woken us I thank You, Lord, that You have spoken words, Lord, from Your Bible, from Your Holy Word, that have the ability to affect our heart and to change our lives today. And Father, I trust that You're going to move in Your way, in Your time, bringing us to the place where we are soldiers in armor of light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand this morning.